0: There's something new on Airs L.A. every day. I'm your host, Annette Bro, and every Monday, I review varying events that happen during This Week in History, brought to you from A&E Networks, The History Channel, and History.com. October 17. On this date in history, in the year 1906, a shoemaker leads German soldiers in a robbery. Wilhelm Voigt. A 57-year-old German shoemaker impersonates an army officer and leads an entire squad of soldiers to help him steal 4,000 marks. Voigt, who had a long criminal record, humiliated the German army by exploiting their blind obedience to authority and getting them to assist in his audacious robbery. Wearing a captain's uniform, Voigt approached a troop of soldiers in Tegel, Germany, just outside Berlin, and ordered the unit to follow him 20 miles to the town of Kopenik. After lunch, he put the men in position and stormed into the mayor's office, declaring that the mayor was under arrest. Voigt commanded the troops to take him into custody. He then demanded to see the cash box and confiscated the 4,000 marks inside. The mayor was put in a car, and Voigt ordered that he be delivered to the police in Berlin. On the way to Berlin, Voigt managed to disappear with the money. Still, it took more than a few hours at the police station before everyone realized that it was all a hoax. Although the Kaiser thought the story was funny, the German army didn't find it so amusing, and a massive campaign to find Voigt was instituted. Days later, Voigt was caught in Berlin. He received a four-year sentence for his caper, but the Kaiser himself pulled some strings to get him out in less than two. Voigt wound up a folk hero for the rest of his days. Wearing the captain's uniform, he posed for pictures for years. October 18. On this date in history, in the year 1968, John Lennon and Yoko Ono are arrested. John Lennon and Yoko Ono are arrested for drug possession at their home near Montague Square in London, England. The arrests came at a tempestuous time for the couple. Only days earlier, an announcement was made that Ono was pregnant, creating a scandal because both Lennon and Ono were still married to other people. Her pregnancy ended in a miscarriage a few days after the arrest. Detective Sergeant Norman Pilcher, the instigator behind the raid on Lennon and Ono, was an anti-drug zealot who would later arrest George Harrison and his wife on similar charges. While Lennon was frantically trying to get rid of the evidence, the police read a warrant through a bedroom window and then broke down the front door. Drug-sniffing dogs found 200 grams of hashish, a cigarette rolling machine with traces of marijuana, and half a gram of morphine. However, the couple denied that the drugs belonged to them. When the matter finally approached trial, Lennon pleaded guilty because he was worried that Ono would be deported. He was fined 150 quid and warned that another offense would bring a year in jail. October 19. On this date in history in the year 1987, Black Monday. The largest ever one-day percentage decline in the Dow Jones Industrial Average comes not in 1929, but on October 19, 1987. As a number of unrelated events conspired to tank global markets, the Dow dropped 508 points, 22.6%, in a panic that foreshadowed larger systemic issues. Confidence on Wall Street had grown throughout the 1980s as the economy pulled out of a slump and President Ronald Reagan implemented business-friendly policies. In October 1987, however, indicators began to suggest that the bull market of the last five years was coming to an end. The government reported a surprisingly large trade deficit, precipitating a decline in the U.S. dollar. Congress revealed it was considering closing tax loopholes for corporate mergers worrying investors who were used to loose regulation. As these concerns grew, Iran attacked two oil tankers off of Kuwait and a freak storm paralyzed England, closing British markets early on the Friday before the crash. The following Monday, U.S. investors awoke to news of turmoil in Asian and European markets and the Dow began to tumble. Further compounding the crash was the practice of program trading the programming of computers to automatically execute trades under certain conditions. Once the rush to sell began, matters were quite literally out of the traders' hands and machines escalated the damage to the market. Despite looking like the beginning of another Great Depression, the L.A. Times headline read, Bedlam on Wall Street, while the New York Daily News simply read, Panic! Black Monday has been largely forgotten by Americans not versed in financial history. As it would again in 2008, the federal government took a number of measures to correct the market, resulting in immediate gains over the next few weeks. By 1989, the market appeared to have made a full recovery. Some now interpret the events surrounding Black Monday as proof that boom and bust cycles are natural and healthy aspects of modern economics while others believe it was a missed opportunity to examine and regulate the kind of risky behaviors that led to the crash of 2008. October 20. On this date in history, in the year 1947, Congress investigates Hollywood. On October 20, 1947, the notorious Red Scare kicks into high gear in Washington as a congressional committee begins investigating communist influence in one of the world's richest and most glamorous communities, Hollywood. After World War II, the Cold War began to heat up between the world's two superpowers, the United States and the communist-controlled Soviet Union. In Washington, Conservative watchdogs worked to out communists in government before setting their sights on alleged Reds in the famously liberal movie industry. In an investigation that began on October 1947, the House Un American Activities Committee, HUAC, grilled a number of prominent witnesses, asking bluntly, Are you or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? Whether out of patriotism or fear, Some witnesses, including director Ilya Kazan, actors Gary Cooper, and Robert Taylor, and studio honchos Walt Disney and Jack Warner, gave the committee names of colleagues they suspected of being communists. A small group known as the Hollywood Ten resisted, complaining that the hearings were illegal and violated their First Amendment rights. They were all convicted of obstructing the investigation and served jail terms. Pressured by Congress, the Hollywood establishment started a blacklist policy banning the work of about 325 screenwriters, actors, and directors who had not been cleared by the committee those blacklisted included composer Aaron Copland, writers Dashiell Hammett, Lillian Hellman, and Dorothy Parker, playwright Arthur Miller, and actor and filmmaker Orson Welles. Some of the blacklisted writers used pseudonyms to continue working, while others wrote scripts that were credited to other writer friends. Starting in the early 1960s, after the downfall of Senator Joseph McCarthy, the most public face of anti-communism, the ban began to lift slowly. In 1997, the Writers Guild of America unanimously voted to change the writing credits of 23 films made during the blacklist period, reversing but not erasing some of the damage done during the Red Scare. October 21. On this date in history, in the year 1959, the Guggenheim Museum opens in New York City. On New York City's Fifth Avenue, thousands of people line up outside a bizarrely shaped white concrete building that resembled a giant upside down cupcake. It was opening day at the new Guggenheim Museum, home to one of the world's top collections of contemporary art. Mining tycoon Solomon R. Guggenheim began collecting art seriously when he retired in the 1930s. With the help of Hilla Riebe, a German baroness and artist, Guggenheim displayed his purchases for the first time in 1939 in a former car showroom in New York. Within a few years, the collection, including works by Vasily Kadinsky, Paul Klee, and Marc Chagall, had outgrown the small space. In 1943, Ribey contacted architect Frank Lloyd Wright and asked him to take on the work of designing not just a museum, but a temple of spirit where people would learn to see art in a new way. Over the next 16 years, until his death six months before the museum opened, Wright worked to bring his unique vision to life. To Wright's fans, the museum had opened on October 21, 1959, was a work of art in itself. Inside, a long ramp spiraled upwards for a total of a quarter mile around a large central rotunda, topped by a domed glass ceiling. Reflecting Wright's love of nature, the 50,000-meter space resembled a giant seashell, with each room opening fluidly into the next. Wright's groundbreaking design drew criticism as well as admiration. Some felt the oddly shaped building didn't complement the artwork. They complained the museum was less about art and more about Frank Lloyd Wright. On the flip side, many others thought the architect had achieved his goal, a museum where the building and art work together to create an uninterpreted, beautiful symphony. Located on New York's impressive Museum Mile at the edge of Central Park, the Guggenheim has become one of the city's most popular attractions. In 1993, the original building was renovated and expanded to create even more exhibition space. Today, Wright's creation continues to inspire awe, as well as odd comparisons, a jello mold, a washing machine, a pile of twisted ribbon for many of the 900,000-plus visitors who visit the Guggenheim each year. October 22 On this date in history, in the year 1962, JFK's address on the Cuban Missile Crisis shocks the nation. In a televised speech of extraordinary gravity, President John F. Kennedy announces on October 22, 1962, that U.S. spy planes have discovered Soviet missile bases in Cuba. These missile sites, under construction but nearing completion, housed medium-range missiles capable of striking a number of major cities in the United States, including Washington, D.C. Kennedy announced that he was ordering a naval quarantine of Cuba to prevent Soviet ships from transporting any more offensive weapons to the island, and explained that the United States would not tolerate the existence of the missile sites currently in place. The president made it clear that America would not stop short of military action to end what he called a clandestine, reckless, and provocative threat to world peace. What is known as the Cuban Missile Crisis actually began on October 14, 1962, the day that U.S. intelligence personnel analyzing U-2 spy plane data discovered that the Soviets were building medium-range missile sites in Cuba. The next day, President Kennedy secretly convened an emergency meeting of his senior military, political, and diplomatic advisors to discuss the ominous development. The group became known as XCOM, short for Executive Committee. After rejecting a surgical airstrike against the missile sites, XCOM decided on a naval quarantine and to demand that the bases be dismantled and missiles removed. On the night of October 22, Kennedy went on national television to announce his decision. During the next six days, the crisis escalated to a breaking point as the world tottered to the brink of nuclear war between the two superpowers. On October 23, the quarantine of Cuba began, but Kennedy decided to give Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev more time to consider the U.S. action by pulling the quarantine line back 500 miles. By October 24, Soviet ships en route to Cuba, capable of carrying military cargoes, appeared to have slowed down, altered, or reversed their course as they approached the quarantine, with the exception of one ship, the tanker Bucharest. At the request of more than 40 non-aligned nations, U.S. Secretary General U. Thant sent private appeals to Kennedy and Khrushchev, urging that their governments refrain from any action that may aggravate the situation and bring with it the risk of war. At the direction of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, U.S. military forces went into DEFCON II, the highest military alert ever reached in the post-war era as military commanders prepared for full-scale war in the Soviet Union. On October 25, the aircraft carrier USS Essex and the destroyer USS Gearing attempted to intercept the Soviet tanker Bucharest as it crossed over the U.S. quarantine of Cuba. The Soviet ship failed to cooperate, but the U.S. Navy restrained itself from forcibly seizing the ship deeming it unlikely that the tanker was carrying offensive weapons. On October 26, Kennedy learned that work on the missile bases was proceeding without interruption, and ExCom considered authorizing a U.S. invasion of Cuba. The same day, the Soviets transmitted a proposal for ending the crisis. The missile bases would be removed in exchange for a U.S. pledge not to invade Cuba. The next day, however, Khrushchev upped the ante by publicly calling for the dismantling of U.S. missile bases in Turkey under pressure from Soviet military commanders. While Kennedy and his crisis advisors debated this dangerous turn in negotiations, a U-2 spy plane was shot down over Cuba, and its pilot, Major Rudolf Anderson, was killed. To the dismay of the Pentagon, Kennedy forbade a military retaliation unless any more surveillance planes were fired upon over Cuba. To defuse the worsening crisis, Kennedy and his advisers agreed to dismantle the U.S. missile sites in Turkey, but at a later date, in order to prevent the protest of Turkey, a key NATO member. On October 28, Khrushchev announced his government's intent to dismantle and remove all offensive Soviet weapons in Cuba. With the airing of the public message on Radio Moscow, the USSR confirmed its willingness to proceed with a solution secretly proposed by the Americans the day before. In the afternoon, Soviet technicians began dismantling the missile sites, and the world stepped back from the brink of nuclear war. The Cuban Missile Crisis was effectively over. In November, Kennedy called off the blockade, and by the end of the year, all the offensive missiles had left Cuba. Soon after, the United States quietly removed its missiles from Turkey. The Cuban Missile Crisis seemed at the time a clear victory for the United States, but Cuba emerged from the episode with a much greater sense of security. The removal of antiquated Jupiter missiles from Turkey had no detrimental effect on U.S. nuclear strategy, but the Cuban Missile Crisis convinced a humiliated USSR Commence a massive nuclear buildup. In the 1970s, the Soviet Union reached nuclear parity with the United States and built intercontinental ballistic missiles capable of striking any city in the United States. A secession of U.S. administrations honored Kennedy's pledge not to invade Cuba, and relations with the Communist Island nation, situated just 80 miles from Florida, remained a thorn in the side of the U.S. foreign policy for more than 50 years. In 2015, officials from both nations announced the formal normalization of relations between the U.S. and Cuba, which included the easing of travel restrictions and the opening of embassies and diplomatic missions in both countries. October 23. On this date in history in the year 1993, Toronto Blue Jay Joe Carter wins World Series with a ninth-inning home run. Toronto Blue Jay Joe Carter wins the World Series for his team by whacking a ninth-inning home run over the Sky Dome's left-field wall. It was the first time the World Series had ended with a home run since Pittsburgh's Bill Mazeroski homered to break a nine-to-nine tie with the Yankees in the seventh game of the 1960 series, and it was the first time in baseball history that a team won the championship with a come-from-behind home run. The Blue Jays were leading the series three games to two, but thanks to a five-run seventh inning, punctuated by a three-run blast from outfielder Lenny Dykstra, the Philadelphia Phillies were ahead 6-5 to five in the ninth. It looked like the Phils would tie the series and force a seventh game, but then they brought reliever Mitch Wild Thing Williams out of the bullpen, though Williams had saved an impressive 45 games that season. He'd earned his nickname by throwing wild pitches when his team was in a tight spot, and he'd already blown a 14-9 lead for the Phillies in Game 4. Williams did just what the Blue Jays were hoping he'd do. First, he walked leadoff batter Ricky Henderson in four straight pitches. Then, after Devin White finally popped out to left field, after nine pitches, Williams gave up a single to series MVP Paul Molitor. With Henderson on second and Molitor on first, Joe Carter stepped up to the plate. Carter took two balls, then two strikes. Then he cracked a low slider hard toward the left field pole. Ninety-nine times out of a hundred, he said later, I hook that pitch way foul. But this time, he didn't. The ball swerved right and disappeared over the wall. It was the ultimate sports fantasy, Carter said. His memorable homer won the game and the series, the highest scoring in history, 81 runs in all, and the Blue Jays' second championship in a row. And it put Carter alongside celebrated hitters like Bobby Thompson, whose immortal shot heard round the world, won the 1951 National League pennant for the New York Giants. On that same day the next year, the French sailor, Isabel Otisier set a record in the first phase of the famous BOC round-the-world yacht race. She made it to Cape Town from Charleston in 35 days, 8 hours, and 52 minutes. The second-place yacht was 1,200 miles behind her. Later in the race, a huge wave overturned Otisier's yacht when she was nearly 1,000 miles off the coast of Australia. She was stranded in the ocean for four days until an Australian Navy helicopter rescued her from the deck of her damaged ship. And that wraps up our This Week in History podcast for October 17 through October 23. If you'd like to learn more about Airs including streaming audio podcasts and more, we invite you to visit us on social media platforms. This podcast is for the sole use of our blind and print-impaired audience any unauthorized use is prohibited. I'm Annette Rowe, and I'll return next week to bring you more events that happen during Next Week in History. Until then, thanks for listening.